trust is built in this era by telling people what your limits are. Hey there, and welcome to a brand new episode of Delivering Marketing Joy. I am your host, Kirby Hossman, and joining me today is a brand new rock star. So excited to dig into some of the tactics today. He's the CEO of Cascade Insights, Sean Campbell. Thanks so much for joining me, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. Glad to be here. Absolutely, absolutely. So like this first question, I kind of was digging into your background, and I love this question. It was kind of queued up for me. And because I'm a believer that when you say yes to everything, you know, all of a sudden you get a lot of things on your calendar that you're not that excited about. And so I've seen that you said that no matters more than yes when leading a firm and managing clients. Why is that? Well, I'll give it to you initially as a story and then some background or beyond that. I mean, Love when it. I was a younger seller trying to grow Cascade Insights. Cascade Insights is my second company, but um, I sold the first after owning it for about six, seven years. But I was in the offices of a guy in HP. He was a vice president. And I did the thing a lot of people do where they, when they feel like they're in a good flow with a potential client and the client says, do you do this? And they say, you say, yeah, I do. And you really mean it. You do. And then the client says, do you do this? And you're like, great. They said something else I do. And then the client says, do you do this? And you're like, again, they said something I do and I do it really well. And that went on for a couple minutes. And then this guy, Paul Logue, who was the VP, he puts his hand out, which is never a good sign in a meeting. And he puts <laughs> his hand out and he says, I know you want to keep the aperture wide open, but, and, you know, for the sake of time, like it doesn't even really matter what happens after that. There's kind of a longer story. But at that moment, it started me down this road of thinking, I need to get out front of what we don't do first. I need to be able to say what we're not going to do because it generates trust. Yeah. And only and and now many entrepreneurs will struggle with that because they're like, well, whatever I say no to might be the only thing in this opportunity that I had the chance to make money with. Right. And it's like, well, maybe that's true, but you're also hurting the long-term relationship and all firms have boundaries anyway. So there's a there's a client relationship aspect to it um where it builds a lot of trust. I, there's also though an issue of even a leadership standpoint. Um, I read an article from HBR once and I, <laughs> ever since then, I've tried to find the article, but I, I know it exists. Uh, <laughs> but there was this article I read that said um, they polled CEOs and said, how many strategic priorities have you established for your firm? And they said, you know, cough, cough, five, seven, eight, ten. you know, maybe more if they were a big fortune 500. Then they went out and polled all the lieutenants right? The staff sergeants reporting to that CO basically. And um, when they added up the number of initiatives, all of those lieutenants were operating on, it was like 112 or something. <laughs> ridiculous. In other words, the, the CEO had done a poor job of saying no. The CEO had done a very poor job of saying, don't do this. Yeah. You know, there is, everybody understands opportunity costs, but as a CEO, you're always presented with these moments where you can tell your team isn't quite able to do everything. And I think some CEOs go through a door marked of do it no matter what it costs. And other CEOs, a must limited set, the door is much smaller, say, all right, let's talk about what you're not going to do. Yeah. 
Because you have to open that door because an employee is is in a dangerous position every time they tell you, I can't do that. Right. So as the leader, you have to be the one that kicks that door open and makes that an okay conversation to have. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me, uh, the, the Bob Iger uh, autobiography, I read that about a year ago and Bob ran Disney and he was the second in command there for you know years. And then when essentially the opportunity to lead the organization came up, a political advisor came into his office and said, what are your, th- what are your priorities? And so he said, this one, this one, this one, so he got to like five or six. And the guy said, stop. He said, if you have more than three priorities, you do not have any priorities. And I was, that stuck with me. <laughs> um, and I think it goes to what you're saying. Does that make sense? Right. No, it totally does. Yeah. I mean, and there is, there is one other thing about saying no um, that I think about from a from a book, just because you made me think about it when you brought that up. It's a book called The Hard Things About Hard Things by yeah. Ben Horowitz. Yeah. And he's got this classic consultant two by two grid in it. And it doesn't really even matter what's in three of the four cells, but because you can probably extrapolate when I say what's in one of them. But he basically says, when you decide against the crowd and you're right, um, basically you're going to, you're never going to get a lot of praise for that decision. So mm-hmm. one of the challenges with saying no is um, it doesn't usually come with as much praise as yes does. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yes, you know, let's do hyper growth comes with a lot quicker praise than it, until eventually you pay the price. Right. Um, then no measured growth is what we should do. Yeah. Right. And so um, I think it's, it's also an ego thing. Sometimes yeah. it's just no, harder to sure. say no. And, and all of those things are, are um, a lot of the reasons I think you, you, you're better off remembering to say no a lot as a CEO than yes. Yeah, that's fair. So I, it, the other thing I read is you talk about the age of narrow. So I, what does the age of narrow mean and how can professional service firm leaders address it? Well, there's a little connection point to what you asked me about before, just to tie the two together briefly. You know, that story about narrowing the aperture is kind of where I got started thinking about this, even though I didn't really call it the age of narrow back then. But I, um, you know, fundamentally, trust is built in this era by telling people what your limits are. Mm. And that is really a state change from all marketing and sales before now, basically. Yeah. And, 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 and I know that's a big statement, but but here's why I think it's really true. Content has always exist to tell people what you're capable of. It is rare to find content that says, this is what I'm not capable of. And because professional services firms, first and foremost, must be trusted because fundamentally they're providing a service and yeah. deep at the heart of whether someone will like your service is whether they trust you to do it well. Right. Um, you can create that trust simply by stating up front, these are the bounds upon which we operate. We don't take customers of this type. We don't do services of this type. Um, you know, these are the kinds of problems we don't solve. And what I find is that a lot of marketing and sales teams and even leadership teams are almost pathologically incapable <laughs> of saying what they don't do, yeah. especially in copy. <laughs> and what I would say is that the the age of narrow basically is that this is beyond business. Everybody has the ability to narrow what they consume. 
You know, you can mm-hmm. watch uh, English period dramas all week long on Netflix. You can yeah. watch bad sci-fi movies all week long. It's a wonderful thing. You can order potato chips from the UK and just eat UK potato chips, even though you're a citizen. And it can be here overnight. You have this ability to narrow whatever you want to do. And I think the corollary is people expect that in their business life. Mm-hmm. Um, they expect to find solutions that are narrow. So you A, you're going to narrow the solution for that reason. The second reason, like I said, you have to narrow it is trust. And the consumer analogy I see happening a lot is, you know, when we go to look at reviews for a consumer product, um, do we sort by the positive or the negative reviews? Mm -hmm. We sort by the reviews that tell us where this solution is limited Mm -hmm. because those are the ones we inherently trust beyond the fact that some of those five-star reviews are paid, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. like we, we, we're looking for these two things. We're looking for somebody to tell us what your limits are because we feel it generates trust. And at the same time, we kind of just like narrow solutions more and more and more and more. And so um, fundamentally, this is a mind shift, I think, for most professional services firms, because a lot of professional services firms believe that they're a, a niche of sorts. You know, They understand they have niche expertise, but they don't market that way. Mm. They, they market in a way to try to grab as much of the market as possible. And when I think of that, the flaw in that is... Um, there's a quote from a newsletter I read. I wish I could remember which Substack it was, but the guy said, it's not the total addressable market you start with. It's the one you end with. Uh, and, you know, if you try to like bring in all the business possible, as opposed to narrowing your business appropriately, you might find it's really hard to get repeat business. And it's really hard to do business with with good ROI. And it's really hard to get, you know, kind of um, a business that operates effectively. And so anyway, I would say that that there's this age we're in where a lot of buying behavior has narrowed. And if you don't change your marketing and sales to align with that trend, you're in trouble. Yeah. So obviously, what you know, we've talked about narrowing, saying no, but you know, at the end of the day, we all have to communicate with our clients. So what are some essential tips to keep in mind when communicating with our clients? Well, I'm going to give you examples from a business to business context because that's that's where we work. But I, okay. I think in, if we just there, a lot of this would be generally applicable to clients in B2C. I think the first thing is you have to recognize that everything you write will be forwarded. Hmm. Everything, which has two implications. One, um, if you're trying to send like a private message or something cute or kind of a little off pattern, recognize it's probably going to end up in somebody else's inbox that doesn't have the same shared context of you and the recipient. Yeah. Secondarily, your goal is to probably motivate an organization to make a decision, which means whatever email you send, you have to make sure that it can be interpreted by other readers who, again, don't have the shared context. Perfect example of this is like a real tight, quick example. Like when we send out proposals, we always write an email cover letter, but in that email cover letter, we very consciously write about the things in our space because we do a lot of market research as a service. Um, what are the things that we think a senior stakeholder might be concerned about with your average research brief? And we very clearly point those things out in the cover email because in many cases, um, you're not dealing with the C-level person in the first stages of an engagement. Right. But your email, your proposal will absolutely be forwarded to them because they're the ones that hold the budget. So you have to shape the comms that way. Um, I think another thing is um, 
writing shorter is better than longer. Um, the quote's yeah. attributable to Mark Twain that I'm about to say next, but I think it actually goes beyond him. It's one of those quotes. But Mark Twain said, I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. Time, yeah. And, and, and which, is, which is so good, right? And yeah. so like, um, uh, there's another similar scene in the movie, A River Runs Through It. Uh, briefly, if no one's watched the movie, you should, but there's a scene where the father's teaching the kid to write and the kid keeps coming down and the main advice the father keeps giving is, half as long uh you know and most people don't know how to do that these days yeah, most hard, people don't even, if you said make that email half as short uh half as long most people would go i don't know how yeah and you know you really have to work that skill i think um a few other quick ones when communicating with clients most people i believe and i fundamentally believe this because it seems to just be true every time i meet somebody if you take your average 20-year-old entering the business world, they're either really good at verbally communicating or really good at written communication. There's a unicorn out there who's good at both. Over the next 50, 60 years of your working life, get it so that other one that you're not that good at is at least an A- minus compared to your A. Yeah. Um, if you can pull that off, you will be in a very narrow set of people. And that's yeah. important because as a client said to me once uh, at the start of COVID, he said, I didn't realize how dumb my coworkers were until they all had to write me things. <laughs> um, and, and, and you have to make, and, and increasingly in virtual companies, your initial foray into getting someone to pay attention to you is the written form. It doesn't mean the verbal's gone. Right. And I'll say, I'll say a corollary. This is the last one. Well, two quick last ones. The, the one, the other one is that this relates to the verbal. Um, when you're in some kind of video conference, for the love of God, think about your audio. I mean, I, you know, for a podcaster, you get this, but I mean, we're, we're all in these conversations where I'm like, go spend $200 on a good mic. You're, you're, yeah. you're talking to people all day long. If you sound scratchy and like you're hailing the Titanic, you know, from 20,000 feet underwater, like, don't do that. Yeah. Like, you know, you, your goal as a modern business professional working in a virtual company through a digital medium is represent well in a digital medium. Yeah. And and honestly, people overfocus on the video, which is important, but the audio is really, really what matters first. And people have all these crud things. The very last thing I'd say is um, with comms with clients, be the first one to end the meeting. Far mm -hmm. too often, providers take a half an hour is like, I have to get everything juice out of this I can. I have to squeeze this orange till the very... You'd be amazed how often you're invited back if you're the one who stops the meeting at 19 minutes and says, you know, I think we accomplished everything. I'm going to give you back like 10 minutes to just go unbold yeah. your inbox. You'll get invited back for another 20 minute meeting and five other ones. And that's yeah. way better than sucking the juice out of the remaining 10 minutes. So it's a good practice. Like, like I would just say, think of your week, think of your meetings, be the person to end it. Not in like a dictatorial way, but just like take that first step to say, client, I'm going to let you get back to work. I guarantee you're going to get dividends. Yeah, that's really good advice. Uh, and I think all of us can, you know, when you get that, I think that's true of a speaker too, right? Like like when totally. I, I was just at a conference and they had asked us to do 90 minutes in a panel. And I was like, oh God, you're setting us up for failure. Who the hell wants to sit for a panel for Nobody 90 minutes? Nobody wants to sit in a 90 minute panel. Yeah. No, nobody. I mean, it would have to be like so relevant. Right. And that means it's not, not yeah. at a conference. No, yeah. no 90 minute panel at conference is that relevant. And so we, um, had but, a, we had a meeting right before and I said, guys, if we go 65 minutes, 70 minutes, it, 
it'll be fine <laughs> as long as it's good. And then we bail. Nobody's going to be mad if they get to the bar a little bit sooner. It will be fine. And uh, right. I think that's great advice, man. Well, one uh, last quick thing on that. Yeah. I mean, what people people don't remember the time they spent. They remember the value they received, which is exactly what you're getting at. Yeah. Like three weeks later, they won't remember that the session ended. I mean, well, we should say there's always someone in the audience right. who fills out an eval and says, I expected 89 minutes of value. Like, <laughs> I, I know there's that guy. And we don't care about that guy. Right. But what we care about is the 90% of the people who go, that was a valuable session. And as yeah. time goes on, they don't really remember how long it was. That's a great, I, I love it. I love it. All right, final question for you, man. This has been great. Um, you guys, you mentioned that you guys do market research. And so what is the most efficient way to do market research to solve like various business questions? And that's kind of a broad question. Yeah, it is. I mean, I would say, so I'll give you two, two, a few different quick frames of reference for that, okay. like our okay. framings. One, um, when you're thinking about like market pain, um, you know, you're going to think about things like analyzing your competitor's activity. You're going to think about whether your messages are resonating in the market. You're going to think about whether you understand your buyers well, like buyer persona research. If you're thinking about gaining opportunity, you know, at the moment we're recording this, probably more people are thinking about pain if they think about the way the economy's turned. But let's imagine right. we get back to those, you know, glory days of where all we're worried about is market opportunity. Um, then you've got things along the lines of market opportunity research and market segmentation and trying to understand, you know, your ideal customer profile. Those are the types of research. But if you were to say, like, um, what is the easiest thing a business could do right. that doesn't even involve a research vendor? Um in B2B, it's actually treating your B2B sales team as if they're running a never-ending qualitative research project because that's what they're doing. You know, there's tends to be this perception that in many businesses that the sales team is either biased or doesn't understand the true nature of the market, you know, or they're not strategic enough. In most B2B sales, your sellers are talking to your clients for sometimes years or decades. They're a wonderful, wonderful sensor and collector of intelligence if you leverage them as such. So I would say for most organizations, that's the best place to start. Uh, and if you wanna go beyond that, um, then you're talking about probably the next most valuable thing is just trying to understand your buyers with things like buyer persona research and stuff like that. But um, but yeah, that's, that's basically the high level. That's cool, man. Oh, Sean, this has been great. I really appreciate it. And I would, I would love to dive in a little bit more sometime if that's all right. Sounds great, man, absolutely. All right, cool. Well, that's going to wrap up this edition of Delivering Marketing Joy. We'll see you next time.